Please turn with me again to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. I want to begin by uh, this morning showing you my favorite book when I was a kid. All right, some of you in the back can't see it, so I made a little picture of it there, but I actually brought the book along, and um, so I know there are a few of you geekish people who are going to want to actually lay your hands on my book, but don't. Somebody tried to actually walk off with my book before the first service. This is my favorite book when I was a kid. I, I read this dozens of times. I, I loved uh, comic book heroes. Like, I liked all of them. Like, I liked you know, Spider-Man and Hulk and Batman, but I especially liked Superman. I mean, first of all, because he's stronger than anybody, sure, and he can fly. I thought that was really cool. But one of the things that always intrigued me about Superman and really uh, many of the superheroes is that uh, nobody knew who they were in real life, right? They, they had this, this alter ego. And I thought that that was so cool, almost humble in a way, that, that their power was veiled, so to speak, right? Superman was Clark Kent by day, mild-mannered reporter, kind of a little bit nerdly, right? People just kind of pass him by. Lois Lane you know, makes fun of him, looks down. She's a little condescending toward him with his thick glasses, even though he can see through walls, right? But she's kind of, ah, Clark Kent. But then Superman shows up and Lois Lane just kind of gets weak in the knees. Oh, that's just so cool. And I, I loved Superman's strength. But most people, when they saw Clark Kent, they had no idea who he really was. You know, the inventors of Superman were two high school boys, and I'm guessing that they had no idea when they invented the character of Superman that they were actually playing off a biblical and messianic theme. Jesus is the ultimate Superman. It's God in human flesh. And so most people missed it. When Jesus took on human flesh, they didn't actually realize that he was the eternal son of God. And, and I would argue for us, even as Christians, sometimes we treat Jesus more like Clark Kent than we do like Superman. And we think of Jesus and we meditate upon Jesus and we approach Jesus rather casually. Jesus is my best friend. Jesus is my buddy. And he's gracious and kind and merciful, meek and mild Jesus, all of which in a sense is really true. But at, at his essence, Jesus is the son of God. He's eternal, he's powerful, he's glorious. And I think that one of my favorite illustrations of that kind of dual aspects of the nature of Jesus is from uh, Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis's series. And if you've never read Chronicles of Narnia, I just say, shame on you, right? I know it's a children's series, but there, there is so much profound truth in Chronicles of Narnia, right? Aslan is the, the main character, It's not that he's on every page, but he's the main character because he's the Christ figure. And in the first book, the Pevensey children meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are trying to explain to them who Aslan really is. I want you to listen to this interaction in case you just have never had the chance to read Chronicles of Narnia until this afternoon. (laughs) And Mr. Beaver says this. He says, I tell you, he is king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, Susan said, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. (laughs) That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. 
Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Matthew chapter 17, Jesus pulls back the veil for just a moment and reveals himself as he truly is, and he's not safe, but he's good. The disciples fall to their faces, terrified, because he's not safe, but he is good. All right, so I want you to read with me this account. Let's begin actually at the very end of chapter 16, verse 28, through chapter 17, verse 2. Jesus is speaking. He says, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Then six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. Jesus Christ is also the Son of God, right? Jesus Christ is the eternally existent second member of the Trinity. That means that Jesus is all that God is. Jesus became the Christ when he took on human flesh, when he was born of a virgin and entered into this lifetime. But before that, he existed as the Son of God. And periodically in human history, Jesus would, uh, the Son of God would break in. And when he broke in and revealed just a little bit of his glory, people hit the deck. Right? They were flat out on their faces because all that God is, Jesus is. And Jesus is all that God is. And he's beautiful and he's glorious and he's awesome and he's powerful. Unlike any other. That is Jesus. There is no rival. And yet in the incarnation, as he took on human flesh, the perfections of his glory, in a sense, were were veiled for a period of time. Prophet Isaiah puts it like this. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. In other words, even out of all of mankind... Jesus is not one who would have stood out. The glory of the eternally existent Son of God was veiled in the incarnation. I want you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. One of the most beautiful descriptions, in a sense, of this veiling. Now remember, uh, the book of Philippians is actually uh, just a thank you letter that Paul is writing as a missionary to one of his supporting churches. And he didn't, in a sense, set out to write a theological treatise, but in the process of encouraging them for their participation and asking them for greater participation, he also, incidentally, lays out one of the most profound passages on Christology or the nature of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. He says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Paul says the eternally existent son of God was fully God and he didn't regard that equality with God something that he had to grasp. Instead, he was willing to empty himself, meaning not that he set aside any of the attributes of deity or that his divine nature was diminished in any respect. Instead, it was that he took on an additional nature, that is human nature. So he was fully God by nature and fully man by nature, but in taking on the human nature, it veiled his deity for a period of time. So much so that he could actually take the form of a servant, not just a man, but one who is, whose appearance would become marred more than the, the, the appearance of any man so that he could suffer and die on our behalf and be mistaken. Right? Overlook the, the greatness and the glory and the grandeur of the eternally existent Son of God veiled or covered by his incarnation. And at the transfiguration... For just a moment, Jesus pulls back this veil of humanity and shows his glory. John chapter 1, verse 14, John says, The word that is the eternally existent God became flesh, took on human nature, and dwelt among us, set up his tabernacle or his tent among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. What's John referring to there? Well, John's referring to the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, there were three who got to go on the Mount Mount of Transfiguration. Peter and James and John. Both Peter and John write about this moment. John chapter 1, verse 14. We beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We were there that moment when the incarnation, in a sense, was peeled back. His human flesh was peeled back, revealing his greatness and his glory. John actually got another vision of this. Romans, uh, Revelation chapter 1 where he's on the island of Patmos and he has a vision of Jesus. And Jesus is shining in his strength and glory and John falls on his face as if dead. In fact, throughout scripture, there are periods of time, moments when God reveals just a little bit of his glory and every time the response is the same. Remember, Moses said to the Lord, he said, Lord, I, I want to see your glory. Show me your glory. And the Lord says, well, I can show you a peak. I can show you a glimpse. I can show you just a little bit because really, Moses, you don't understand. If I showed you all of my glory, it would destroy you because no one can see me and live. So this is what I'll do for you, Moses. I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock, just in a little ledge there. And I'll put my hand over you. Then I will pass by in front of you. And then I'll pull my hand back and you'll see my back, but you won't see my face. Now, those are all, those are all anthropomorphisms, right? H- human descriptions of God because God doesn't actually have a hand or a back or a face. So what he's saying is this, I'm going to cover you up so you're not destroyed. And then I'm going to pass by in front of you and not show you my face that is the fullness of my glory. I'm going to show you a glimpse that is I'll show you my back. And that alone, Moses, will overwhelm you. See, in the incarnation, the glory of the eternally existent Son of God was veiled, but in this moment at the transfiguration, he he peels back that veil and he shows his glory. Turn back with me to the book of Matthew again. Matthew chapter 17 and verse 2. And Jesus was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. 
And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles or tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. But while Peter was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and they were terrified. They were terrified because they saw just just a glimpse of the perfection of God. And if you've ever had a chance to sit in on Buck Anderson's word study class, this is one of Buck's favorite words. Glory, in Hebrew, kavod. It means literally heavy. And when the hailstones fell on Egypt, they were called glorious, right? They were heavy, literally heavy. The metaphor that's drawn from that is something that's heavy is something that's important or valuable. God is glorious in that he's valuable. He's important. He is exalted above all. And so in biblical terms, uh, glory came to be shorthand for the sum total of the attributes or the personality of God, which is more valuable and more beautiful and more wonderful than anything. God is glorious. God is important. But God is also beautiful in a sense in his physical manifestation when God shows up and he gives people a glimpse into his glory, it's, it's terrible, but it's beautiful, right? It's, it's overwhelmingly powerful, but it's, it's lovely. It's, it's beyond the beauty of anything that we've seen before. In fact, C.S. Lewis says, when we observe beauty, right, whether it's in a landscape, mountains, or ocean, or in uh, a piece of poetry, or in artwork, or in music, and something rises up in our spirit, he says, that's that longing that we have for glory, We appreciate beauty because it's a reflection of the beauty or the glory of God. I remember hearing a sermon by Tony Evans years ago, and he talked about uh, getting ready with his wife for a formal event, right? So Tony said, you know, he got ready really quickly, and then he he waited, right? And he he sat and he waited because his wife, she had to pick out the right shoes to go with this dress, right dress, and then right jewelry to go and do her hair and do her makeup. He said, then, you know, finally she's finished, and she comes out, and she revealed her glory, so she revealed her glory. And what's the proper response to glory? It's praise, right? It's praise, it's worship, it's adoration. Now, for any of you young men who happen to be engaged, that's a freebie, right? That's a little premarital counseling moment we've had right now. The right response to your wife's glory because she is your glory is praise. It's worship, it's adoration. Anytime that we see it. And what do we see in biblical terms when God gives just a glimpse of his glory? Reverence, awe, wonder, worship, fear, adoration. People fall on their faces. Peter and James and John were given just a little glimpse of the glory of God in the Son of God so that as they went out and they began to lay the foundation for the church and they proclaimed Jesus, they would proclaim Jesus as he actually and truly is. He's not safe, but he's good. Read with me chapter 17 and verse 7. It says, the disciples heard this voice from heaven. They fell down on their faces to the ground and they were terrified. And Jesus came up to them and he touched them and he said, get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. He's not safe, 
but he's good. He didn't destroy them with his glory. Instead, he lifted them up so that they could worship. All that God is, Jesus is, and Jesus is all that God is. And he's not safe, men and women. And so often we treat Jesus so casually, but he's not safe. He's great and awesome and glorious and powerful. And he gives us these little moments, these glimpses in scripture so that we will worship him as he truly is. Because when we worship him as he truly is, then he can change us and transform us because we see his power and his wonder. Jesus is all that God is. And Jesus achieves all that God has ordained. Why did Jesus, in fact, take on flesh and blood? Why not, why not stay in the presence of his father, fully reflecting and radiating his deity? Why take on human flesh and go hungry and thirsty and have sleepless nights and suffer? Why would he do that? In John chapter 6, Jesus says this. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Why did Jesus come? Because the father said, go. He came to do the will of the father. So why was Jesus on the mountain at this point in time? Because the father told him, go to the mountain. In fact, what we see throughout biblical history is when people are called up on top of the mountain, right? They're called to have a mountaintop experience. They're called by God because God wants to tell them something. God wants to communicate. So we see Jesus on top of the mountain. And what is he doing? Well, uh, he's praying. He's he's interacting with his father. Luke chapter 9 tells us this. He took along Peter and John and John and James. And he went up onto the mountain to pray. That is, to speak with his father. Uh, About what? Well, Luke gives us another little insight. Verse 30 of chapter 9. Moses and Elijah, appearing also in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Moses and Elijah each had a really critical part to play in the outworking of God's redemptive plan. And now it's Jesus' turn. And Jesus' turn would include a departure. That is a journey to Jerusalem and separation, rejection, suffering, death. And so he's speaking to Moses and Elijah and the father about his role in the outworking of God's redemptive plan. Remember, Moses and Elijah, these these are two critical figures in God's plan. Moses represented the law. The law of Moses, which really revealed many things, but in particular, the absolute perfect holiness of God and the utter sinfulness of man. The law ended up revealing so much about man and man's rebellion against God. And Moses' ministry, in a sense, really ended in failure because the law revealed sin, but it didn't provide the power to remove the debt of sin or the strength to overcome sin and obey. And so, as it's described in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says it's actually just letters engraved on stone. It's not life. It was a ministry of death. It was a ministry of condemnation. Moses is critical in revealing the holiness of God and how unholy people can approach that holy God. But in a sense, his ministry really ended in failure. The result of his ministry caused the need for prophets who would call people back to obedience to the law. And Elijah represents the prophets. He's not the only prophet. He's not even the first prophet. But he really, he stands uniquely above many of the prophets. He's the representative of prophets, calling people back to obedience. And how did Elijah's ministry end? Well, there were moments of revival from the prophets. 
when the people responded in humility and obedience, but by and large, the people moved further and further and further away from God. All right, so Moses and Elijah represent two stages in God, the outworking of God's redemptive plan, but also each of those stages represented failure. Now, at the same time, Moses and Elijah represent the future. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 says this. This is Moses speaking. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, that is Moses, from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. So remember when Jesus said, uh, who do people say that I am? They said, well, you could be Elijah or one of the prophets, or or he might be the prophet, that, that one that Moses promised. That future prophet that the people would actually listen to, right? Moses was a prototype of that prophet that is Jesus. Elijah also was a foreshadowing of the future. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Long after Malachi, or after Elijah had died, it says this, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And disciples actually are very confused. They're just like, I thought Elijah was coming first. And Jesus says, well, he will come first, but he also already has come in the form of John the Baptist. But he's going to come again. Because I'm going to be rejected the first time, and then I'm going to come back a second time. And their heads are spinning particularly these three, they come down off the mountain. They say, Jesus, could you sort it all out for us? Why Moses? Why Elijah? Well, they represent these two stages in the outworking of God's redemptive plan, but also they foreshadow the future when God will set all things right through his Messiah. And so here is Jesus discussing with Moses, Elijah, and his father, his part of the plan. Marching to Jerusalem, being rejected by his nation, Stripped and beaten and crucified. Physical suffering, spiritual separation from his father. And do you think that Jesus had any anxiety over his part of the plan at all? The answer is absolutely yes. He is on the mountain to receive direction from the father and to receive encouragement. Remember, there's one other moment in Jesus' life that we know of that he pulled aside Peter and James and John. Remember which one it is? Garden of Gethsemane. Garden of Gethsemane. Which says, Peter, James, and John. I'm about to enter into this moment of horrific testing. You are my three closest friends. Come away with me. Be with me. Encourage me. Keep watch and pray with me. And he falls down before his father and he says, Father, if this cup of your wrath and suffering, if it can pass from me, cause it to do so, yet not my will, but yours be done. And Luke tells us, who really emphasizes the humanity of Jesus, that his sweat came down like drops of blood. Do you think Jesus had anxiety about going to the cross? Absolutely. So he says to his three closest friends, please come to the Mount of Transfiguration and be with me, watch and pray. He says in the Garden of Gethsemane, please come be with me and watch and pray. And what do his disciples do both times? They pass out. They fall asleep. Can you imagine missing the unveiling of the glory of God? Imagine if Jesus said, and you guys have no idea what you just missed. I just, I put on an amazing show. Or imagine if just one of them had woken up and said, guys, I can't believe you slept through it. Have you ever slept through something that was really, really important to you? Students, I remember for years after I graduated, I had nightmares, <laughs> sleeping through a final exam. 
A final exam of a course that I didn't remember that I had signed up for. That was actually my nightmare that kept coming up. I don't know if some of you are feeling that right now. Maybe I shouldn't have even said it. Just horrible memories. For one time, my sister, uh, she wanted to do something really special for my birthday, so she paid for us to go deep sea fishing. So I was in Dallas at the time, so I drove down and spent the night with her. She's living in, in Houston at the time. We were going to get up early, drive to Galveston, enjoy our deep sea fishing adventure. Neither of us had been before, but we heard that the water's really going to be choppy the next day. So we got online, we took a tip, we got some of those Dramamine patches. We're like, okay, awesome, we'll be fine when the waves are really choppy. Actually, you know, best plan would be let's just put those on now, tonight. So we're ready for tomorrow. So we put on the Dramamine patches. And you know what? In the morning, me, 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 alarm went off for like two hours. And we slept completely through it. We got up just in time to race through Houston and drive to Galveston and, and watch the boat go away without us. Can you imagine sleeping through the glory of God? Apparently, we're told in Luke's account that they woke up as Moses and Elijah were leaving. That's why Peter says, wait, hold on a minute. (laughs) Let's pitch three tents. And actually, I love Mark's account because it says, Peter answered, but no one asked him. (laughs) It's a typical Peter. Nobody asked Peter anything. But Peter answered, and he says, I've got a great idea. Let's pitch three tents. In other words, this is as good as life gets. Moses, Elijah, don't leave. Let's stay right here in this moment. And most of you probably don't capture your best moments by sleeping in a tent. Right? I get that. Uh, not in our family either, right? I, I took my wife camping once, one night. That's, that was it, right? I mean, you know, bugs flying and she slept on rocks and she was scared and no sleep whatsoever. So you don't think about, hey, let's, let's have our best moment and sleep in a tent. So I don't want you to push that whole image aside, right? Push that aside. Because what Peter is referencing is something w- with much greater theological impact. What he's talking about is the Feast of Tabernacles, right? This is an allusion to uh, sacred tents of meeting. Sukkot, it's called in Hebrew, or tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. And it was retrospective, in a sense, for Israel. Every year they would set up these booths. And it would remind them that when God rescued them from slavery out of Egypt, that as they passed through the wilderness, they just picked up their tents and moved and followed God. And everywhere that they stopped and they pitched their tents, God protected them from their enemies and God provided with them with food and water. Water, And so they celebrate that retrospectively. But also they anticipate as they would gather around Jerusalem annually and pitch their tents that one day God would send his Messiah and they would live securely on the land and they would live prosperously on the land and there would be safety from their enemies and they would experience all of the blessings of God. And so Sukkot or Tabernacles was this anticipatory festival of the coming kingdom of God. And Peter says, let's pitch a tent because you just said we'd see your kingdom. Let's stay in your kingdom. This is as good as it gets. The coming kingdom of God. 
Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16. It says, all of the nations, in fact, will come and they will bring all of their wealth and all of their glory and they will worship God in Jerusalem. And that will be the kingdom established perfectly forever. And in fact, when that happens, we're told in the book of Revelation, there will no longer be any sun or moon or stars. It won't be necessary because now God will be dwelling in the midst of his people and there will be no need for any illumination because the glory of God will provide the light and the beauty. That's what Sukkot anticipated. Peter says, let's pitch our tents right here and enjoy the presence of the glory of God. And what I'd like to do for just a moment is let me trace for you this history of God's glory among his people. And I've given you each of these references. So I'm not going to go back and read them. I just want to summarize them, but I'd encourage you maybe to go back and read this week. These four passages trace the movement of the glory of God in the midst of his people. The book of Exodus, remember Moses went up on a mountain. And when he's on the top of the mountain, God comes down in fire and smoke. And he speaks to Moses face to face. He says, Moses, what I'm going to do for you in Israel is I'm going to give you a pattern. I'm going to give you a scheme or a blueprint of what my throne room looks like. And I want you to recreate it on earth in the form of a moving tabernacle or a tent. Recreate it just as you have seen it. And so Moses came down and they built the tabernacle according to all of the design that God had given them. And then they they dedicated it to the Lord and they prayed that God would, would move with them and guide them and direct them. And as they dedicated it to the Lord, we're told that fire comes down from heaven and there's this this cloud, bright, shining cloud that inhabits the tabernacle, and it is so dense and so powerful and glorious that Moses has to leave, and the Levites have to leave, and the priests have to leave. In other words, wherever the glory of God is, there's room for nothing else. And when God guided them, that cloud would pick up and move, and the people would follow it because they wanted to be in the presence of God. And they wanted to hear the voice of God and be directed by God, so they would follow, and then the cloud would stop. And they would pitch their tents. And if God was leading them by night, that cloud would rise up. And in the midst of that cloud, there would be fire. It would be a bright, glowing cloud. And they would follow. And when it stopped, they would stop. And eventually that cloud led them into the promised land. And when they were there, David said, I'd like to make this permanent. I'd like for God to dwell with his people. I'd like for God to dwell with me. I live in Jerusalem. Let's make this permanent. God, I want to build you a temple. God said, no, not for you. David, because you're a man of bloodshed, but your son can. So David stored up all kinds of resources and wealth and gave them to Solomon. Solomon built this beautiful temple. And he dedicated it to the Lord. And on the day that he dedicated it, a cloud came down. It was the glory of God. And the cloud was so dense and so powerful that Solomon had to leave. And the Levites had to leave. And the priests had to leave. Because when the glory of God is present, there's room for nothing else. Isaiah had a vision of this in the throne room of God and the glory of God came and inhabited the presence and Isaiah said, all flesh had to leave, all all creatures, all of the angelic creatures, I had to leave. There was room for no one else in the presence of the glory of God. It was that powerful. The tragic story really of Israel's history is that they didn't make space for the glory of God and reserve that space for God and for God alone. Instead, they they brought in false gods. Even into the very temple of God, they brought false gods into their homes. They brought false gods into their hearts. They crowded out the glory of God. 
See, it's really ridiculous that Peter would say, let me pitch three tents. As if Moses and Elijah were anything like the glory of the Son of God. And yet that's the story of Israel. Allowing lesser gods, lesser loves to crowd God out. And so what you see in the book of Ezekiel God really won't share his singular place of worship, and so he leaves. The glory departs. Ezekiel has a vision, and the glory of God leaves the Holy of Holies, and it stops at the threshold of the temple. And then it takes another step, and it leaves the threshold of the temple, and it goes to the eastern gate of the temple complex. And then it goes out through that eastern gate to the Mount of Olives, and it departs from Israel. And Israel is exiled God's glory has departed. Israel is forced to leave the land. But even then, God says, I will bring you back. I will establish, reestablish my glory among my people. In fact, Israel was allowed to come back, and they rebuilt the temple under Haggai. And as they dedicated the temple, they had a celebration. And there were people who were, who were jumping up and down, and they were dancing and singing and celebrating. But we're told there were others also who were weeping. Those who had been young when the temple was still in existence, they had seen the previous temple, they had probably even seen it destroyed, and then they were taken away to exile, and now they're old, and they come back, and they see this new temple, and it's nothing. And the Lord says through Haggai, who among you is there who saw that temple in its former glory, and how does it seem to you now? Is it as nothing in significance? But I tell you, that this temple will be even more glorious than the previous. And that promise was fulfilled on the eighth day of Jesus' life when the eternal Son of God in human flesh, meek, mild, easily mistaken, was brought by his parents into the temple and presented and dedicated The glory of the Son of God in human flesh was greater than the glory of any previous temple or tabernacle. And you know what? Everyone missed it. Well, not everyone. It was Anna the prophetess and Simeon, a few shepherds. But otherwise, no one recognized the glory of God. They missed it. In the incarnation, the beauty and the wonder of the glory of God was veiled But for a moment in the transfiguration, that veil is torn back for a moment and the glory of God is observed and witnessed. But almost everyone missed it in the incarnation. In Matthew chapter 12, we studied this a few weeks ago. Jesus unveils a little bit of his glory, doesn't he? He performs miracles. Miracles, sign after sign after sign. Finally, there's a man who's, who's, who's deaf and he's dumb and he can't speak. He's blind. He's, he's got demons that are possessing him. Everything is wrong with him and Jesus heals him, but he heals him on the Sabbath. And the leaders of the nation reject Jesus. And Jesus says, this is your final chance. And you've chosen against me. So recall in chapter 13. Jesus turns. He doesn't present the kingdom any longer. He doesn't say the kingdom is coming in its glory. Instead, the kingdom is going to come in a whisper. It's going to be a mystery. It's going to be a mustard seed. In fact, probably most of you are going to miss it. Because it's not going to be political and it's not going to be powerful. It's not going to be breaking into human history in any dramatic fashion whatsoever. Instead, it's just going to silently kind of slide in. It's going to slide in through, through this means that's really rather unglorious 
and I hope you don't feel offended, but what I just described is you. It's the church, right? This mystery form of the kingdom. Colossians chapter one, Paul puts it like this. The riches of the glory of this mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Trace the theme with me again. There's tabernacle moving through the wilderness. There's fire and smoke and a cloud. It's moved to the temple, but it leaves the temple because the glory of God departs. Then it's restored in the person of Christ and he offers himself as the glorious king of Israel. They reject him. He said, all right, well then I'm going to do it a different way. It's not a surprise to me, but here's my plan. It's going to be a mystery. What I'm going to do instead is I'm going to inhabit my people. Where is my temple now? This is my temple. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the glory of the mystery. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. You are a representation of the glory of God. And as you allow Jesus Christ to transform your life, more and more and more of that glory begins to just shine out from you. More and more you reflect the nature and the personality and the character of God. As you exalt Jesus Christ as first and foremost in your life, and as you put away all of the idols that can creep into your heart and diminish or cover that reflection of God's beauty, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, but you were bought with a price. Therefore, Paul says, glorify God. Because you are the glory of God now on earth. Political and powerful? No, we're just the church. Powerful in a subtle and beautiful way? Yes. And the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church that is transformed into the very beauty and glory of God. What does that look like? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15 says, But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But we all, the church, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Isn't that that a beautiful passage? You're being transformed from glory into glory as you look into the glorious face of Christ. In other words, really the key to all of our lives is worship, men and women. If I can put it differently, our sin problem is a worship problem. The cloud and fire of the glory of God wants to inhabit our hearts, but what do we do? Well, we allow other things to share that space. And God says, no, there, there can't be three tents. There's just one tent for me. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Let him be first. Let him be foremost in your heart. Our our sin problem is a worship problem. There are just lots of other things that we learn to love and we worship. And it might be be a career and it might be a relationship and it might be an addiction, but it's whatever we put our attention upon and we love and we value or we put all our, our time deeply into or our money into. These are the things that draw our hearts and our loves away from God because The fact is this, whatever you love, you will follow. Whatever you love, you will do. Our sin problem is a worship problem. And what we need to do is we need to learn to to once again worship Jesus Christ above all else. And when we do, these other false loves will die in their attraction to us. So how do we apply this? Let me give you a few thoughts this morning. The first is this, confess. Confess. A confession is a spiritual discipline that we often forget or neglect to practice. 
Confession is learning to listen to the voice of the Spirit as we think about our moments and days. We let the Spirit examine us. And we learn to listen, not just to what the Spirit says we have done, but what we thought or what we long for or love, the motives of our hearts. And the Spirit convicts us of sin, and we confess when we say, yes, God, you're right. I acknowledge, I say what you say about sin, and we give it back to God. Confess. I want to challenge you this week to do three things. The first is this. Take a little bit of time to practice confession. And it may be that the Holy Spirit brings up lots of stuff, or maybe he doesn't bring up anything at all. I'm guessing something will come up. Confession. Second, meditation. Let me encourage you, uh, rather than reading multiple chapters, if you're in a through-the-year plan this week, let's just pick one. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, which beautifully describes these dual aspects of the character of the Son of God. His humility and his kindness and his grace, his willingness to allow his divine nature to be veiled for a moment so that he could suffer and die for us. And yet because of that, it says the Father will exalt him and make him once again the name which is above every name and his greatness and glory will be revealed. Let's meditate upon that. And then third, let me encourage you to worship this week. Confession is a spiritual discipline. Meditation is a spiritual discipline. Worship is a spiritual discipline. All these are skills that we can get better at. We can learn to worship better. To worship again means to ascribe worth, right? We say that that's most valuable. To worship is letting our our minds be informed, but also letting our hearts be inflamed. And worship, it really pertains to all of life. But there is a special place in our hearts and minds for worship like this, music. There's something that God has done in in creating the the human soul that when truth is put to music, it goes through our heads and our brains and it goes down into our hearts and it changes our affections. And you may say to yourself, well, you know, I'm not really a music kind of person. I don't play any instruments. I'm not really particularly great at singing. I don't care. I don't care. That's not what it's about. But it's, it's learning to lift up your voice, even if it's just a joyful sound, not a beautiful sound. My grandfather was a blue-collar worker. He had a, a gravel business. He built roads. So he drove a gravel truck, and uh, he knew how to operate all kinds of heavy machinery. He loved working on a bulldozer and just making, making roads smooth. And my dad said that uh, when he was a kid, he remembered hearing his dad singing hymns over the diesel motor. He didn't have a great voice, but he loved to worship. He wasn't a teacher, but he loved Jesus. And so he would sing out. And I remember as a kid hearing him sing out, you get in the truck with him and he would go, you know, when I hit teenage years, I'm like, could you stop, please? But he loved to worship. And we have to learn how to worship. And we have to grow as worshipers because, really, our sin problem is a worship problem. We're just letting other things grow in their place in our heart. So I'm going to give you three songs that I really love right now. And I want to encourage you. If you've already got your own playlist, that's great. If you don't, here's a few that you can download uh, that are a few of my current favorites. Hill songs, Oh, Praise the Name. I listened to that yesterday about four times. I, I love that song. Man of Sorrows uh, and Bethel's Ever Be. Those are three just really beautiful worship songs. 
And I will tell you, you know, Tim has, has done great things in my life. I get to drop little theological nuggets for him once in a while, and he's taught me the more important skill of worship. That I have grown as a worshiper because Tim has led me. So where, what I want to do as we close this, I want us just to take a few minutes and worship together. Okay, so let's take a few moments silently before the Lord. I ask the Lord just to clear our hearts and to clear our minds. If there's something that needs to be confessed, let's deal with it right now in this moment. And then let's worship together. Let's, again, ascribe worth to Jesus above all else. And then we'll close in prayer. Father, we pray that your son would be exalted in our affections above all else. And we pray, Father, that that we would be able to see and observe as he is exalted above all and we behold his glory and we look at him as he is, gentle and kind, but also great and powerful and glorious as we gaze into the personality and the face of Jesus. We worship him, we think on him, we meditate upon him, that we would see him transforming our lives into his very character and personality. Father, I I thank you for revealing Jesus in us and through us, and I pray that you give us opportunities, even this week, to speak of him, to exalt him not only in our own personal worship, but also in our witness. We'd be able to proclaim to others that this is our life, this is our hope, this is our peace. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. It's in his powerful, precious name that we worship and sing. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week worshiping Jesus, and we'll see you next week.